You're listening to a podcast from the University of Warwick. This series was produced as part of the conference All Together Now, British Theatre After Multiculturalism. The conference was organised in collaboration with the British Theatre Consortium. In this episode, we hear from Kenan Malik, speaking as part of the panel discussion Offending the Audience. Uh, the panel consists of three people who've um, uh, created work that's been accused of being offensive and been protested against. Janet Steele, the director of Beshti, mentioned this morning, Richard Bean, the writer of England People, very nice, and Stuart Lee, co-author of Jerry Springer, the opera. We've also got two uh, commentators who've thought and written about these matters, both of them on the far left in their youth, both having changed their positions on some issues since. Um, David Rondovich is a newspaper columnist, most recently on The Times, uh, and currently on The Times, and Kenan Malik is the author of From Fatwa to Jihad, which is a political history of British Muslims from the 70s till today. Uh, because of the way the panel's fallen out, for it, we, we got somebody who wasn't able to be on the panel, who I'd asked originally, and then became available, which is great. Um, it, it, we've got more, it's, it's the largest panel of the event. And also, I think, which some of the panelists themselves have pointed out, it's probably quite a homogenous uh, panel in terms of its opinion on the core topic we're discussing, which is why, again, it's extremely important that we have time uh, to listen to other things. And, and, and for that reason also, I thought it might be worth by start, starting uh, by summarising some of the arguments that the right to offend argument needs to, 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 to counter. Uh, not expressing my views, you understand, but, but trying to summarise uh, views that have been expressed um, seriously and, 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 and consistently. Uh, first, the argument that free speech as an absolute doesn't exist anywhere in the world uh, and that many great works have been created without it. Uh, up until 40 years ago, British playwrights couldn't show two men in bed together, insult friendly foreign powers, criticise the royal family or represent God. Uh, the freedom to offend is not a pillar of our ancient British liberties, but a relatively recent invention. Much of our literature and our great literature is produced quite happily without it. Uh, the laws against blasphemy were only repealed last year. Uh, second, that if there is a freedom to offend, it might be applicable in some circumstances, but not others. What's permissible within the rules and mores of the comedy circuit might not be appropriate to football terraces or on television screens. Third, and connectedly, uh, some producers of art uh, have responsibilities which other, others don't, as, as Stuart argued very persuasively this morning. Shouldn't publicly funded bodies pay attention to the needs, wants, uh, tastes uh, and feelings of the communities which surround them and pay for them. And shouldn't, should particular attention perhaps be paid to the feelings of communities that have traditionally been excluded from public visibility and the political conversation? There have been thousands of plays about Catholics, pro and anti. When for the first time your community is represented on stage, don't you have the right to be miffed if your religious institutions are shown as hotbeds of corruption and sexual assault? Similarly, do people writing about beleaguered and invisible communities have a right to take into account uh, how those communities have a duty to take into account how those communities see themselves, give them a, a right of reply? Fourth, the right to offend doesn't obviate uh, criticism or even condemnation. Uh, you can accept right as a noun, a right to do something, but not necessarily as an adjective, 
it is right to do this. Um, and fifth, uh, can the freedom to offend sometimes be thoughtless about the other rights which it trumps? Shouldn't the parents of Myra Hindley's victims or Jane Bulger's mother not have the right to be left alone with their grief? And the hostility to plays uh, about those cases in particular, most recently directed against Nicholas Radstrom's Monsters, which is about the two boys who killed James Bulger, reminds us perhaps, uh, by contrast, the dis disproportionate amount of attention uh, that's shown to offended groups with brown faces. In fact, the right to be protected from offence is a right increasingly demanded by many groups on many grounds. The newspapers who excoriate Muslims for protesting against the Danish cartoons, you could argue, are the same newspapers who demand that plays about Myra Hindley are to be banned. Books and ideas are suppressed in school curricula through fundamentalist Christian pressure all across the land of the free. Following protests from American Christians, CBS was fined half a million dollars when a singer's nipple was exposed for 1.7 seconds uh, during the broadcast of the Super Bowl. And the Supreme Court has just upheld the right of the Federal Communications Commission to ban swearing entirely on network television. In our own country, a poem by Carol Ann Duffy was recently withdrawn from the syllabus of a particular school because it was seen as glorifying knife crime. And speaking of glorification, some people have noted that the two pieces of anti-free speech legislation introduced <coughs> by the British government in this present parliament had strikingly different histories. The bill banning incitement to religious hatred asked for by Muslims was emasculated and has never been implemented. The bill banning glorification of terrorism, clearly directed against Muslims, was marginally amended but essentially passed into law as originally intended. Finally, the issue uh, that floated through yesterday, the issue of power. The right to free speech begs the question, some argue, uh, of who gatekeeps the speech and who, he said into the microphone, controls the microphone. Um, that's not a comprehensive summary of, of, of the arguments, and it may be a satirical one. Uh, in part, uh, but uh, I hope uh, some or, or, or all of those arguments are going to be addressed in the next uh, hour and a quarter or so. And I'd like to start uh, with Ken and Malik. Thanks, David. Um, I see that the two interlopers of this conference are you know, being shuffled off to the ed edge of the table. I mean, I'm not somebody who's ever written a play, directed a play, produced a play, um, but I think it's quite useful to, to come to a discussion like this to, you know, being an outsider, being an interloper, because the point I want to make is that the issue at the heart of uh, any debate about giving offence is actually about how we see diversity and why we value diversity. Uh, um, that uh, the, the different arguments about offensiveness uh, and about whether it, it should be restrained, how far it should be restrained, are really arguments about the nature of diversity uh, and, our, uh, and how we understand it. Because underlying the, the, the claim that, um, uh, that the giving of offence is a cultural or a, or, or a moral wrong is a belief that a plural society uh, must, uh, places particular demands on, on speech um, uh, and that speech must necessarily be less free in a plural society precisely because it is a plural society. And the argument runs something like this, as you know. A diverse society, uh, for such a society to function and to be fair, 
And we need to show respect, not simply for individuals, but also for the cultures and beliefs uh, uh, in which those individuals are embedded uh, and which, uh, to a certain extent, give those individuals uh, their sense of being, their identity, and so on. So Tariq Madhu, the, the, the sociologist, puts it like this. He says, this means that if people are to occupy the same political space without conflict, they mutually have to limit the extent to which they subject each other's fundamental beliefs to criticism. And one of the ironies in this viewpoint, it seems to me, is that living in a plural society uh, uh, means that the preservation of diversity uh, means that there's a, uh, there's a, gr uh, a greater constraint on, what, uh, on the diversity of views in such a society. It seems to me that that's an argument that's fundamentally wrong or fundamentally misunderstands both the nature of diversity and its relationship to free speech. When we say we live in a diverse society, and it's, it's an interesting question that, that one of the questions that are, uh, interesting point, that one of the questions that are very rarely raised is why, why is diversity good? It's a kind of almost like seen as axiomatic diversity is good, but nobody actually asks why is it that diversity is good? It seems to me that when we, when we say we live in a diverse society, what we're saying is that we live in a messy world. The world out there is messy. It's full of conflicts and clashes. And that, to me, is all for the good. Because it's out of such conflict and clashes that political and cultural engagement emerges. Or to put it another way, diversity is important, not in and of itself, but because it gets us out of our narrow cultural boxes, uh, it allows us uh, to engage in, in, in that dialogue and debate um, and put different values, beliefs, lifestyles to the test. But the very thing that is valuable about diversity, the clashes and conflicts that, that, that it brings about, is precisely what it seems to me many people fear about it. And that fear takes two forms. On the one hand, you have the kind of Little Englander sentiment, you know, uh, immigration is undermining uh, the national fabric, eroding our sense of Englishness and Britishness, turning our cities into little Lahores or, 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 or you know, mini Kingstons. And on the other side, you have the multicultural argument, which says diversity is good, but it has to be restrained. It has to be policed in order to minimise uh, the, the, the clashes and conflicts and, and, and frictions uh, that it brings about. And the imposition of moral and legal restraints on the giving of offence is uh, one such form of policing. Well, I take the opposite view on this. It seems to me it's precisely because we live in a plural society that we need the least uh, uh, degree of constraint on free speech. If you lived in a homogenous society where everybody thought the same, then the giving of offence could only be gratuitous, precisely because everybody thought the same. But in a plural society, the giving of offence, it seems to me, is both inevitable and important. It's inevitable because where you do have people with deeply held differing views, then clashes are unavoidable. And that those kinds of clashes, as I said, are expressed to me the heart of what it is to live in a diverse society. And even at a pragmatic level, even if you don't see this in terms of principle, even at a pragmatic level, it's far better to have those clashes out in the open than to suppress them in the name of tolerance and respect. But more than that, I do think that the giving of offence is not just inevitable, I think it's important. Because 
Any kind of social change or social progress means offending some deeply held uh, sensibilities. This goes back to the question of power that, uh, that David raised. Um, the, the, the issue of, of, of offensiveness is about the issue of power in the sense that the idea of that something is offensive is a way of actually defending some groups, some uh, people's uh, power within a group, within society. The notion of giving offence suggests that certain practices, certain uh, beliefs, certain uh, views are so important uh, or valuable uh, to certain peoples or groups or, or, uh, and so on that they should be put beyond uh, caricature or abuse or ridicule or even sometimes even questioning. It seems to me the importance of free speech is precisely that it provides a permanent challenge uh, to the idea that some questions are beyond contention and hence acts as a permanent challenge to authority. And that's why it seems to me that free speech is essential, not simply to the practice of democracy, but to those groups that have been failed by the democratic process, to those groups who, whose views, whose, who, who, whose, whose um, lives have been shackled by racism, for instance. That it is to those groups to whom free speech uh, and the giving offence um, is, is most important. The real value of free speech, in other words, um, is not to those who possess power, it is those who want to challenge them. The real value of, of, um, of, of the idea of, uh, that certain things should not be said because they are offensive um, are to those who do not wish their, their, their power to be challenged. And uh, Of course, most people who, who, who argue about the restraints of, on free speech um, would have no problem, or say they would have no problem, with uh, criticism or uh, uh, questioning. What's an, uh, unacceptable, they would argue, is that where such criticism crosses a particular line, where it becomes abuse or slander. Um, Shabir Akhtar, who was a uh, Muslim philosopher who was a spokesman for the Bradford Council of Mosques at the height of the um, Satanic Versus controversy, he became the spokesman, in fact, shortly after the, the book burning uh, uh, demo. He makes a point that there's a there's a, 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 all the difference between sound historical criticism and scurrilously imaginative writing. The real debate, he says, or he said, was not about freedom of speech versus censorship, but about legitimate criticism versus obscenity and slander. And of course, there's exactly the same argument has been made in relation to Bestie or, or Jerry Springer or uh, Seven Jewish Children and so on. But the question then arises, who makes that judgment call? Who decides what is legitimate criticism and what is obscenity and slander? And the answer to this also, it seems to me, depends on how one views diversity and why one values diversity. Because underlying the argument for, 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 for restraint and offensive talk is an often unstated uh, uh, belief that diversity ends at the edges of minority communities. And I think we had a bit of that, actually, in the previous discussion, that there is somehow that Britain is composed as a diverse uh, society because it's composed of a, a collection of communities or cultures all dancing around each other. But somehow those cultures are, 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 are in of themselves uh, quite homogenous, that they have a, a certain way of, of thinking about subjects, uh, of issues that are all the same. And you, you, know, you go to you know, whether it's... Christians offended by Jerry Springer or Muslims offended by 
uh, the satanic verses. That you know, all you do is go to the putative uh, community leaders, find out what those communities think, and you know then what offends uh, those communities. But it seems to me, and, and, and um, Jacinda Verma has put this quite well, that what is often called offence to a community is actually a dialogue or debate within that community, which is why a lot of the flashpoints in relation to giving offence have actually been about minority artists writing about their communities um, because they're in, involved in, engaged in a debate within that community. So it is not simply a question of offence to a community, it is a dialogue within a community. And the argument that of restraint of offence seems to me um, a, 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 an argument to prevent, to stop, to, to, to stymie that conversation, that dialogue going both within communities and, 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 and across them. You know, go back to the, 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 the satanic verses uh, question. As it happened, neither Shabir Akhtar nor Salman Rushdie represented the Muslim community. Both represented different strands of opinion. And it's not the job of politicians or arts administrators, it seems to me, to decide you can say, have your part of the conversation, but you can't have yours. And in making a a, a moral or, or political virtue, the idea of offence. I fear that that's what's happening. That, that what happens is that people say, uh, administrators, politicians, and so on, say, that, that part of the conversation is acceptable, but this part of the conversation isn't. Seems to me that a job of art administration, uh, uh, arts administrators is not to say that, but to allow the best artistic uh, expressions of that conversation to flourish as best as is possible. And in that sense, it seems to me that the question of, of the giving of offence is not a way of defending the dignity of minority communities, of the, 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 the position of those without power. It is uh, often to suppress the arguments, ideas of those uh, who are vulnerable, who do not have power. And that is why I think we should be very, very sceptical about any notion that the giving of offence should be uh, in, in any way uh, uh, minimised, um, uh, whether by law or simply by cultural practice. Thanks very much. Very good. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I'm sure the idea of, 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 of conflict within communities as, as, as well as between will come up when we come and talk about, about basically with Janet. This conference was supported by the School of Theatre Performance and Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, Warwick Arts Centre, the Humanities Research Centre at the University of Warwick, and the Department of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway.